0: Thank you for joining us for our series through the Book of Romans. This book is full of rich truths about the Christian life, and we hope that throughout our study, your identity in Christ and our call to communitas are affirmed in you each week. Let's dive into the text. For what it's worth, that worship service I went to yesterday with 68,000 strangers was exhausting, right? Like, anyone else lost their voice because they were yelling at the football field with me yesterday in the Niner game? Like... It was incredible, but I often joke, like, that's a worship service. We're just worshiping the wrong person, amen? But it is, right? Like, you're singing, you're yelling, you're, you're spending time, treasure, talent being there. And please hear me, it was awesome. It was so fun. It was my son's 16th birthday the day before, and then we got tickets to go down on Saturday, and we had a blast. Now, have anyone down there ever gotten a field pass before when they go to a Niners game? Now, again, a field pass, you get it one of three ways. You either are someone, you know someone, or you spend a lot of money, okay? I did none of the three yesterday, <laughs> but Brayden and I got in. Our seats got us access to at least watch, warm us. We didn't get to go down on the field. In fact, I loved it. There was this big sign. It says, field, access, pass only. And I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a smooth talker. Like, I can get us on the field. And so I went down. I asked the guy. I said, come on. It's my son's birthday. Like, we, we, what do you think? And he's like, nope, no pass. You don't get to go on and I was like that's perfect it's better for my illustration tomorrow so thank you for your rejection now we got close enough though even without the field pass that we got to see some incredible things like the athletes on the 49ers these are men like and by that I just mean I'm watching and I've never felt so insecure as an athlete in my life Like, you're looking at these people and you're like, I do not belong on this field. That's good that you rejected me. Like, I don't belong here. You're incredible. We got to see some other things also. Like, we saw these growing men kiss their babies. We saw them, like, give their wife a hug. And Bray and I were like, that's kind of weird, but they're going to work. So they're just saying goodbye to their, their family before they go to work. It was this beautiful thing and the game was way more beautiful than that. But we did not get field access. We didn't get a field pass. But today, I want to give you a field pass to Vintage Grace. I want to give you a field pass to me as a leader. Now, again, I promise you, I will not impress you. (laughs) But what I will do is, is I'll follow Jesus, and he will change your life. See, as Christian leaders, I think often Paul says this, right? He says, follow me as I follow what? Christ. And so please hear me. As your pastor, I've said countless times, I want you happier tomorrow than you are today. I want to give you a field pass to my life, to the word of God, but please hear me. It is not about me. It's about who I'm following. That's really our calling as sons and daughters of the king is to faithfully follow Jesus and invite anyone who's willing, who wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today, to follow us as we follow him. Because if they do, he will change their life. Why? Because there really is more joy in Jesus than anything or anyone else this world has to offer. And so today I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4 because Paul's going to give us a field pass to some of the greatest heroes of faith for the Jews. He's going to give us a field pass to get up close and personal with Drew and with you. And for all these heroes of faith, in fact, it's the kind of people that the Jews probably had jerseys of. Like if they had jerseys of heroes of faith, I promise you they'd have Father Abraham and they'd have David. They'd have these jerseys. And so we get to get up close and personal. But before we do, I want to remind us where we've been. Because today we're in Romans chapter 4. And maybe it's your first time at Vintage Welcome Maybe it's your first time that, that you've, you've been at the church this, this year, that's most of you because it's the 15th, but we've been in the book of Romans and we're on chapter 4, which means what came before chapter 4, chapter 1, 2, and 3, okay, and so I don't want us to forget where we've come from, and again, if you're new, we're actually on YouTube, you can binge watch sermons, there's way worse things to binge watch with your life, you can also just read the book. So if you're watching online, Romans chapter one through three, here's where we've been. Paul starts this book as the author. He says, I am Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. And I'm writing to a divided church. Again, there was no division at the ball game yesterday. They were like no Seahawks fans. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. There were like seven total. But under, in the church, please understand this, you have Gentile believers, and you have Jewish believers, and it's created a division in the church. They don't get along. They speak different languages. Like, I've always laughed. Maybe you're a guest here at church today, and you're like, when do we clap? When do we sing? When do we stand? When do we sit? Like, what are the rules? If you don't like the game of football, or you think it's soccer, the wrong football, right? Like, you don't know. And so you have Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They're coming together, and there's a clash. What do we do with Pork. When do we stand? When do we sit? What jerseys do we wear? What does this look like? And so Paul is writing this letter to a divided audience. Jewish believers, Gentile believers, but actually the front of their jerseys all say Jesus. And so that's the context that Paul's writing. He's never been to this church. He hasn't planted this church. He wants to go to this church. Why? Because he says, guys, if we understand the power of the gospel, our big idea of the whole series is we are unified by the gospel. If we get that, we will change the world. In fact, think about it today. We are living proof of the fruit of Paul's letter to the church of Rome. That the, through God's grace, through the church of Rome, the gospel continues to spread. 2,000 years later, we're in, in El Dorado Hills, California, and we're talking about Jesus. That's the fruit of this letter. Where Paul was right, he says, guys, divided church, let's be unified by the gospel because we can actually change the world. And then he goes on, he says, here's my thesis, chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, the power of God to save. It's to display his glory, his righteousness. Now, often as a pastor, people ask me, say, they'll say, Drew? I just don't understand, how does a loving God send anybody to hell? You ever heard that question before? I get that question all the time. How does a loving God send anybody to hell? It's actually not a hard question to answer. The question in Romans answers the opposite question. How does a righteous God let anybody into heaven? Here's what I mean. In the beginning, God created you and me with a throne on our hearts. We use the stool as a metaphor for that almost every Sunday. In the garden, Adam and Eve were created with God sitting on the throne of their hearts. And in the garden, God loved them so much he didn't make them follow him. Adam and Eve, after a couple of chapters, they reject God. They knock God off the throne of their heart. That's the same issue for you and me, Adam and Eve, and everybody in between. We actually don't trust and treasure God. We don't believe that as better is better. And that's not unique to you or to Drew or to the Jews. It's true of all of humanity. Go read the Old Testament. Go look at history books over and over and over again. It's the same story. God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And we reject him. We knock the throne of our heart personally, corporately, collectively, and it happens over and over and over again. And so what we see in the book of Romans is, again, the question, why does a loving God send people to hell is simply this. We chose it and he loved us enough to let us choose it. That's the truth of the matter. In fact, chapter 1, 18 through 32, this was the big idea, that God gave them up to themselves. He let them have what they wanted. They rejected God. They created sin. They they, they settled for sin, and they created idolatry. People, places, things that they put on the throne of their heart. And God let them have their way. That's what the text says over and over over again. And if you remember the text, the divided church, I think the Jews, as they were hearing the letter read, were probably sitting at the home church saying things as it was being read, amen, preach it, Paul, you get them, because he thinks they're just talking about the Gentiles. Are the Gentiles sinners? Yeah. I love when people ask me, do you think that I'm a sinner? No, I know you're a sinner. I don't have to think that. Like, I already know if you got here, you've got issues. That's true of everybody, no matter what jersey you're wearing. It's a human condition. That's the truth. And so God says, I'm going to give them up to themselves. They can choose their own way. And the whole time the Jews are like, get them, get them, get them. And they're pointing at the Gentiles. Now we learned this in chapter one. One finger out means what? Three back at me. And so Paul flips the script in chapter two, verse one. He says, no, no, no. Therefore you too, Jews, you have the same issue. In fact, the fact that you're judging them reveals the throne of your heart. It reveals that you have issues. And in Romans, Paul is making it crystal clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Remember, amen means I agree. It means, yes, that's what Paul has said. It's an airtight argument that everybody is in need of a savior. In fact, I don't know about you, but was anyone else depressed as we kept preaching the same verses over and over and over again? Okay, Drew, I get it, I'm a sinner. No, we don't. We don't get the depth of our depravity, but Paul is trying to help us scratch the surface. And that's what we see at the beginning of chapter one and chapter two. And then we get to the middle of chapter three. Anybody remember what happened in chapter three? Paul introduces us to who? Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. Everything. When you realize that you were dead in your sin and God rescues you, he resuscitates you, he redeems you, he calls you to life again. You were dead in your sin, but now you're alive together in Christ. That's what makes us a joyful community of faith. That's what makes us happy. And so he comes and he, Jesus, becomes what we are so that we might become who he is. Somebody say amen. Amen. Changes everything. We are no longer defined by what I've done, but by what he's done for me. And that's what chapter three was about. We are now justified. I think it's Grudem that helped us understand what that word means. He says, it's just as if I were like Jesus. Well, guess what? I am not. Field pass made that very clear. I do not deserve to be on the field. Romans has made that very clear. I do not deserve. I get what I deserve. Y'all, you don't want what you deserve, right? Right? What we deserve is separation, what we deserve is hell, what we deserve is damnation, but God. Rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. And so that's what Romans has all been about. Jesus, we get his life for our life, his death for our death, and his resurrection for our resurrection, just as if we were him. And now God redeems us and rescues us and makes us a new humanity. Who wants in? Anybody? Like I was trying to give Seahawks people jerseys yesterday as they were leaving the stadium. I'm like, we'll take you. like, we'll bring you in. And so it's at this point in the book of Romans, make no mistake, we get to chapter four. And I love this because here's chapter four. Paul just says the question, who's in? Paul says, I'm in. I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm in. I wanna be a part of this new humanity. And so then what he does is he takes us back to the OG Israelites, the father of Israelites. He takes us back to everyone who's wearing their father Abraham jerseys. And so Paul teaches us that faith in Jesus alone is the only basis of our being justified and declared righteous. It's true for you and it's true for Abraham. And so he shows us this by saying this was God's plan from the beginning, even in the father of Israel, by pointing to two of the biggest witnesses of the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter four, we're going to start in verse one. Here's what the text says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God, no. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but they are his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David, who also speaks of the blessing of the one who God counts righteous, Apart from his works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Would you pray with me? Spirit of God, would you speak? Would you show us who you are? Would you invite us into this new family if we've yet to get off the throne of our heart? And for those of us that have, would you continue to build us as a communitas with a common master and a common mission that have not just been saved, but sent? Sent to the world. Sent to a humanity that is helpless apart from you, that is longing for rescue, but it'll never come because of what we can do, but only through what you can do. Would you speak and would your people be changed for your glory? We pray. And everybody said, amen. So I think Paul here gives us a field pass. He lets us see, he lets us get down close and personal. And it's this very intimate picture. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? He says, guys, you all want to talk about Abraham, but the truth of the matter is faith alone saves you, and the Old Testament will testify about this. In fact, here's the truth of the matter with the field path. I was looking around with my son to say, is there just someone I can walk with and say, I'm with him? I mean, that would be deceitful, so I didn't do that. But I was wondering, is there just someone, and I think the Jews on many levels, they're trying to live their life spiritually speaking to Yahweh, saying, I'm with him. Have you ever noticed this, that you don't pick your parents the teenage years, you usually remind your parents of that. Then as you get older and have to pay for college, we remind you of that, right? Like, but you don't pick your parents. It's such a weird thing to boast about. Well, I'm so-and-so. Generations later, the Jews are boasting about Father Abraham and Abraham, if this was like a game of telephone, he'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you boasting about me? I only boast about Yahweh. Why are you boasting about me? And yet the Jews are boasting about Father Abraham. There's over 230 references in the Old Testament to Father Abraham. There's over 60 in the New Testament. In fact, I would encourage you, if it's a rainy day and you've got nothing to do, go read the Gospels and pay attention to how often Father Abraham comes up. Over and over again, he comes up. In fact, Jesus references this in chapter 3, though, of Matthew, verses 7 through 12, John the Baptist is teaching. He's the one that prepares the way for Jesus to come. And JB says, you guys all boast about being a son of a a father, Abraham. You do understand that God could have raised up stones to be sons of Abraham. You don't pick who your father is. Like that's grace of God. But yes, Abraham is the one who the seed of salvation is gonna come through. So it's cool. In fact, really what we see in chapter two is Paul say, hey, you Jews, you probably should be held more accountable to your rejection of Jesus than the Gentiles because you had a front row seat. You had a field pass and you still missed it. That's what Paul's been saying in Romans. And so we see in the Gospels that after chapter three of Matthew, you get to chapter eight, and this centurion comes to faith. I love this. As he's in the process of coming to faith, here's what Jesus now tells the Jews that are boasting about being sons and daughters of Abraham. He says, yeah, but you know what? This Jewish, this non-Jewish Gentile centurion, he's going to eat at the table with father Abraham. That would have blown their mind. Why? Because Jews and Gentiles did not get along. It would have totally caused them to strip up, which was actually Jesus' point. What is the basis of your salvation? Where you come from or who you follow? That's the question that Jesus is asking throughout the Gospels. In Luke 16, it comes this way. Jesus tells another story about a rich Jew and, and a poor man, Lazarus. And again, the Israelites that are listening would have said, of course the rich Jew is in heaven. Of course that's what's happening. And yet, what does Jesus say in Luke 16? You'll have to go read it. He says, no, no, no. He doesn't make it to Abraham's table. Actually, Lazarus does. That ticks the Jews off. What do you mean? We know Father Abraham. We have a field pass. We know somebody that's really, really important. Jesus says, that's not the point. The point is who sits on the throne of your heart. Go read the Gospel of John. Again, all this talk about Father Abraham. He was great. Why is Father Abraham great? Because God chose him. That's why he's great. Not because of what he's done, but because of what God has done for him. And so in John chapter eight, we see more teaching where they're saying, yeah, but what about Father Abraham? He's so amazing. And what does Jesus say? He says, Father Abraham was awesome, but I am the great I am. I am greater than Father Abraham. Now at this point, don't miss, why do the Jews wanna kill Jesus? Because of all those statements. Because their faith, their hope, their trust was in Father Abraham and not in Jesus, not in Yahweh himself. And so, again, as we read chapter four, this is loaded with context. So, what then shall we say? What shall we say? Now, remember, chapter four comes after chapter three. Here's where we left Romans last year. And you're like, it was a long time. It was only three weeks, people. Take a deep breath. It's 15 days. But the last time we were in Romans, this is where we left it. Here was the question. Romans 3.28. Paul leaves us with three questions. Where is our boasting? If it's all about faith and it's all about Jesus, where's our boasting? And what's the answer? It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't boast anymore. We don't boast about ourselves. We don't wear our own jerseys. He goes on in chapter 3.29. He says, so is God the God of the Jews only or the Gentiles also? What's the answer? Yes. He's the God of anyone that says, I've decided to follow you, Jesus, to get off the throne of my heart. And the last question in three says this, so do we overthrow the law by this faith? What's the point of Abraham then? What's the big deal of being a Jew? Don't don't overthrow the law. It was a gift, why? Because if you follow Abraham and if you follow the law, guess who you're gonna meet and see? Jesus. He said, don't get rid of this. This is not a new gospel. This is not an alternative way of salvation. It's been the same plan since the foundation of time but never will we put on Abraham jerseys. Abraham just guided us and directed us to Jesus. And so it's ironic here that the, the sons and daughters of Abraham are boasting about Abraham and Abraham would never boast about himself. Why? Because he knows what Romans three twenty three says, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Every one of us has not gone from our heart. Oh, no, one of us is worthy of being followed except for in the sense that Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's the only one worthy of praise. The text goes on. So then what does the scripture say? I love that. What does the Bible say? What does the Torah say? Because it's almost as if the Israelites have read the Torah and nothing else. Like they actually forgot about who Father Abraham was. Abraham believed God and it was what? Counted to him as righteous. That comes from the book of Genesis chapter 15 where it literally says, and he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed. Faith saves us, not works. But if we have faith, we will work. Don't miss this. Good works will never lead you to salvation, but salvation will always lead you to good works. What I mean by that? If you believe, you'll see your belief in the way you spend your time, your treasure, your talent. Did Abraham have faith? Yes, and it was his faith that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. But again, you wanna just take a moment and pause and say, okay, what's the strength of my faith? Go look at your calendar, go look at your checkbook, go look at what makes you happy. Go look at what makes you sad. There's the strength of your faith. Father Abraham, the hero of our faith. How awesome was Father Abraham's works? Anybody remember? Again, not that good. In fact, I'd encourage you go back and read the book of Genesis. In Genesis, what you're going to see is you'll literally see from, from chapters 11 all the way through 25, this 100-year journey of Abraham as a sojourner longing for the promised land. And on that journey, what you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of lack of faith. You're going to see that he believed, but then he lied about his wife's identity. Not once, but twice. How about you? I'm really quick to give grace. I pastor a church called Vintage Grace. I think that's important. I'm really quick. Like you make a mistake. It's like, oh, darn. Bummer. Like, like you, yeah, you're a sinner. I knew that. But, but don't make the same mistake again. Don't crawl back up on the throne of your heart. So Abraham lies in chapter 12 about his wife. And what does he do in chapter 20? He lies again. Ugh. So when we think about Abraham's faith and how it works out, how would you describe it? I mean, right? Come on, this is Father Abraham. This is who we boast in. You're like, okay, yeah, but it was just this one thing. No, no, no. Abraham believed, but he doubted. Remember that? God comes and says, You're going to be the father of many nations, that through your seed, I'm going to bless every nation. There could be beyond the stars that you can count. Do you believe this? And on one level, Genesis 15 says he believed and it was counted as righteousness. But did Abraham really believe? Did he really trust God? Not always. Why is that? Well, because Hagar comes along. Now, why does Hagar come along? Because his wife, and I could imagine those conversations with, with men and the Holy Spirit, right? Where the Holy Spirit convicts you. And what does Adam say when the Holy Spirit convicts him about Eve's sin? He says, my sin. He says, the woman made me do it, right? Can't you imagine Abraham saying the exact same thing? Like, man, we need to own our sin. We need to recognize that if you're a man in this room right now, you are a sinner, Amen. And I love that men were the ones that said amen. That would not have been nice, you ladies in the room, that would have said amen. <laughs> we need to own our sin. On some level, the Israelites need to own the reality that Father Abraham was a sinner. Saved by grace. Who still struggled with sin. Even when he knew. Even when God was with him and promised him, he still struggled. Now, women, are you sinners in the room too? Amen? Amen? I love that the men didn't respond that time either. Because that's part of what it means to be a part of our church is to own our sin, is to recognize that everyone in this room has not got off the throne of our hearts. And so as Paul goes to the church of Rome, he's just challenging them, what makes you so special? It's not that you're a son or daughter of Abraham. It's that Abraham believed you followed Abraham, which is only worthwhile if he followed Jesus. If he follows Yahweh, if his faith worked, but faith does work, it does not earn your salvation, but it shows that you're putting your faith in God. And when we put our belief and our trust and our faith in God, what's the text say? Well, then it's counted as righteousness. Now that word counted is gonna be a big deal. You're gonna see it a ton of times in this chapter, this week, next week, next week, as you're doing your own reading. Verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, 24. You think Paul cares about this word? He doesn't want us to miss it. How is our belief counted to us as righteousness? If we're lying, if we're doubting, if we're lacking faith, how is that actually taking place? That word specifically comes up again in verse four, and, and Paul gives us this example. He gives us this illustration. It's actually a banking illustration. The word counted has come up early in secular documents. It means to put in someone's account. Have you ever had money just magically appear in your account you have no idea how? It's happened to me a few times during COVID, actually, and I'm like, whoa. Oh. Right? I'm just like, well, what's going on? I didn't earn it? I didn't deserve it? I'm like, what just happened? That's what we're looking at here. Abraham wakes up one morning, and out of his belief, someone has credited to his account something that he didn't earn and he did not deserve. Now, he contrasts that with actually a fair day's wage. He says this Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I've had staff in my life. I've been in the business world. When I pay my staff in the business world, I'm not paying them and saying, aren't you lucky you got a paycheck? No. They showed up to work. They worked and then they got paid. Is that grace? Grace is unmerited favor. What is a paycheck? That's merited favor. (laughs) You showed up, you did the work, you got paid, and it was put in your account. Here's what Paul says. The one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Just as if I was like Jesus, which again, I am not. To the one who does not work, but believes and is justified as the ungodly, his faith is counted. It is put into his account as what? As righteousness. There's two sides of the coin that I think Paul's trying to describe for the church of Rome here. One side has grace. One side has mercy. Now don't miss works and wages stands opposite to faith and gifts. Works and wages stands opposite to faith and gift. And yet what we see here, going back to that question, how does a loving God send people to hell? That's easy. We earned it. We deserved it. We rejected God. The question then is, how does God give us grace? That's what is not earned. That's what is not deserved. And here's the picture that he gives us. He gives us the picture of Abraham. Did Abraham deserve grace? No. What did Abraham deserve? I mean, just think about this reality. Romans 3, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both the Jews and the Greeks, are under what, church? Sin. In fact, go back all the way even more, Joshua 24. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other what? So again, the faith of Abraham. What's important for the Jews right now, what's important for you to understand is that I'm not the only one. My name is Drew and it rhymes with, so do you. And that's literally what Paul's saying here. Paul's literally saying, church, there's a unity in this reality that Drew and you and Father Abraham, that all of us do not deserve grace, but grace is the imputed. That's that word counted. It's this given imputed righteousness of Jesus, just as if you lived a life of no sin, which again, you get a field pass and you start to recognize, I don't come close. Amen. That's what Paul's doing for the church of Rome. That's one side of the coin. We're overwhelmed by God's grace. We don't deserve to wake up in the morning with breath in our lungs, let alone being called sons and daughters of the one true king. Not only grace, but also mercy. He goes to David. Because at this point, like I think between verse four and five in the church, whoever had the Abraham jersey, they took it off, right? They're like, Ooh, sorry, Abraham want me to wear this. But then lots of other people had the David jersey on. They're like, yeah, but what about David? And on the other side of the coin, here's what Paul says, just this David also, David speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. So you've got grace, which is this imputed righteousness counting for you. You've got mercy, which is the imputed sin, does not count against us. It's like I get put in the game and all of a sudden I am Joe Montana. I'm sorry, Brock Purdy is not Joe Montana. Can we just get that on the table right now? He's just not. It's not fair to him. I was at the game, he threw lots of bad passes yesterday. So I'm not picking on a guy. Please hear me, because I know you watch our sermons. I'm proud of you, bud. Like, it's great. But he's not. And again, we're messed up if we start to think that way. But what would it be like if they grabbed Drew from section 132 and they were like, you're in. It wouldn't look as good as Brock Purdy, I promise. But what would it look like if Joe Montana showed up, right? I mean, that's the just as if I. Just as if I was the one, mercy is that my liabilities, my sin, my rejection does not actually count against us. You know who gets that better than most is David. See, I don't understand why we only remember the good stories about Abraham and then we forget all the bad stories about David, right? David was the king. I love David. In fact, after the fact, in the New Testament, he's called the man after God's own heart. I love David. But pay attention. You know what David understood? David understood mercy. Here's what the text says. He says this, he's quoting Psalms. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are what? They're covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's what it means to be blessed. We've ruined that word in America. You've heard me get off and I'll try not to get up on top of a a soapbox right now. We've ruined the word blessed. Why? Because we think blessed is the six figure income, two and a half kids, and that life is good. Being blessed means you get God, not that you've got a good life. Way too often we're settling for a good life and we miss God. That will not do you any good in eternity. Please hear me. David understood that. David had it all. On many levels, David had all. You're like, no, no, he was a small shepherd boy. He was rejected. And then he became king. And anybody else remember the life of David? What does David do? He goes and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he takes her as if she's a possession. And beyond that, what does he do? She has his, her her husband killed. I mean, you want to talk about a jacked up human? Go look at the life of David. You want to talk about a jacked up human? Go look at the life of Abraham. And by the way, anyone else in this room too? That's the truth of the gospel. And so Paul just says this. Remember what David said? King David He's not talking about his exploits and he's not talking about his power. He's not talking about his victories. What does David say it means to be blessed? Not that he has everything, but that he actually gets confronted with his sin. Blessed means this, according to the book of James, according to the way that Jesus used it. Blessed means spiritually complete. That's what it means. So actually maybe being blessed the way America uses it doesn't actually bless us because it distracts us from what matters most. It takes us away from the gospel. Being blessed means that you recognize that you're desperate and dependent, but God. That's what it means to be blessed. Here's what he says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are what? Forgiven. I was talking to one of our life group leaders earlier this morning, and it was fun just wrestling with this. I don't know about you, but when you apologize to someone and it's something quick and it's not that big of a deal, and how do we respond when you say, hey, I'm sorry, how do we respond? No big deal. No, no, it's a big deal. Sin rejecting God is a big deal. It's knocking God off the throne of your heart. He loves enough to let us have it. But but again, the truth of the matter, sin is a big deal. What does David say? Here's a big deal. Blessed are those who have sinned, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and then their sins are actually covered. How do they get covered? Sin's a big deal. Where does the wrath of God get placed? Jesus. Just as if I. I. Just as if I get that inheritance and that grace and the mercy is that the wrath is given, the imputed sin does not count against us, it counts against Jesus. And so please hear me, David understood this on a deep level. See, the word grace going into the New Testament, the word grace was a word that was used in antiquity. It was used pretty common, but it was normally used just to friends. Like you gave grace, you gave unmerited favor to friends. Why? Because they were your friends, So you give them things, not because they deserve to earn it, but because you love them. The word grace, when Jesus shows up, it gets used towards people that hated Jesus. Do You see how that flips in the kingdom of God? Jesus gives grace to who? The people that hate him. The people that want to kill him, to the Jews and to you and to me. That's the truth of the matter. And so David understood this on a very, very deep level. In fact, even think back with me. Remember when David is like, he's further on in his life. He's repented of his sin. He's been restored and he moves on and he wants to build God a temple. And what does Nathan the prophet come and tell him? Actually, God said you can't. God doesn't need your money. It's his. God doesn't need your time or your treasure or your talent. It's his. Your sin's gonna cost you and you're gonna miss out on something because of it. So David understood on a very deep level the cost of sin, the shame and the guilt and yet here he is saying, blessed. Blessed is someone who specifically has had their sins covered because it was given to Jesus on our behalf. And so here's the truth of chapter four. Chapter four centers us on who Jesus is and what he does for us and what we cannot do for ourselves. And so the implications today are are deep and they are wide. And I want to give you some space to just start and to to look at you. I want to give you some space this morning to to look at you and to look in the mirror metaphorically. To pause, I want to encourage you to grab your communion elements. Just hold them for a moment. And, And as you hold them, take some space and look at me. You're like, no, 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 I don't want to look at me. We've looked at David and Abraham, that's enough. Would you look in the mirror of your sin this week? Would you look in the mirror and see your sin this month? Look at your time, your treasure, your talent. Look at your heart. Look at your anger. Look at your joy and things that were not of God, that they were of this world. Take a moment and look and do yourself a favor. Don't just look at the best versions of you. Look at the real you. Look at the real you. Not David. Not Drew. You. It's so easier to look at someone else and say, oh, look at that sin. No, no. Who is your Bathsheba? Who is your Uriah? Who is your Hagar? Like Uriah, I'm not nearly as bad as that. Can we just pause for a moment? If you're looking in the mirror, we're being honest and transparent. Yes, you are. I am. We are. We're not going to be a vintage grace, a joyful community of faith until we look in the mirror and say, "Who are we as sinners? Who are we as people that have rejected God Almighty?" that have justified that sin and validated it because we've written our own version of the story. Can we stop for a moment and look deeper and longer in the mirror of our sin? Can we just take a moment and maybe you wanna open your hands on your lap. We often pray this way. Say, Spirit of God, would you just, just show me who I am? And I understand it's painful and it's ugly. That's why we started this series with black tape with black felt? Because here's the truth of the matter. Nobody was wearing a Drew Sodostrom jersey at the game yesterday. <laughs> Nobody was wearing an Abraham jersey. No one was wearing your jersey either. You just take a moment and think about who you are apart from Christ, the truth of your life, that sin is not Okay. As you do that, I want to encourage you to look at the image on the screen. It's an image I've shared with you before, but the deeper we understand the depth of our depravity, I think only then do we start to understand the gravity of God's love for us. We start to recognize that no one would have actually picked me to be on their team, but Jesus does. If you think about my, my Niners jersey on the back, anyone know what it says here? Soderstrom, that, that's my last name. These are for sale in the lobby today after service. This is a real game-worn jersey dirty and everything. No one wants this. But God. I didn't even wear this jersey to the game yesterday. <laughs> I wore a Steve Young jersey. Come on. But God sees you. And again, I want to be careful. When we look at ourselves for too long, accident it becomes sin. We start to dwell on the sin and we forget that we needed the Savior. That Jesus come. That he's overcome your sin. That you are no longer separated by your sin. That you're called a son or a daughter. That as you look deep at your sin you start to see the depth of your depravity and that's what causes you to cry out to a savior and say Jesus save me so as we look at ourselves then I think we're invited to look at Jesus that's what Paul's done for us in Romans Romans 1 through 3 look at you and then Romans 3 look at Jesus and Romans 4 is now be a part of his team don't get distracted by you don't get distracted by the sin start to recognize that you too can be blessed That blessed is those who get the gift of grace and are justified now just as if I was with Jesus because he was with me. I wanna invite you right now to take those elements and and to just open up the wafer and to crack it. Don't take it, just hold it, crack it. See, at communion, we take time as a church family to pause and to remember, because Jesus told us to, to remember this is my body broken for you is what Jesus says. But I want us to forget that communion is a very graphic time. The altar of God is a time of of murder, literally. It's a time of sacrifice. It's a time of blood being shed. That's what the altar is. And so when Jesus gathers disciples and says, hey, take this in remembrance of me, what he's saying is, remember that the altar was where the blood was spilled. It's where the bodies were broken. It's where the blood was shed. He says, I did this for you. See, as you look at me, Drew, as you look at you, and then you look at Jesus, you start to remember that he stepped into your gap of sin. That he gathered his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. And he turns that altar into a table. He turns that altar into a table. It's ironic that even the Jews who were frustrated that Jesus was eating with sinners. Remember that? Remember that? He's eating with sinners. Why? Because eating is fellowship. Because table is fellowship. Because the altar is fellowship. Jesus, through the breaking of his body, made you fellowship with a king. He broke his body. He spilled his blood intentionally for you to have a way. That's why we look at Jesus. So if you love and treasure Jesus, this is for you. If you don't, I'd encourage you to skip this part. But if you do, remember, this is his body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of him. invite you to open the cup. After he breaks the bread and shares it with his disciples, he then passes the cup and the wine. He says, this is a sign of my new covenant. This is where the altar becomes a table. We call it the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, where he's making away, when there was no other way, the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb that takes away the sin of the world was shed for you. Take this in remembrance of him. So Jesus, we cry out to you. We receive your body and your blood that was broken and that was shed. We look deeply into the mirror of our sin and of our life and we recognize that we do not belong, but you, Jesus, made a way when there was no other way. That you, Jesus, have come and have overcome the world and have called us deeper into relationship with you to repent, to get off the throne of our hearts, to look deeply in the mirror and to reflect and to respond through repentance and to respond and to cry out and to respond and to worship, to be like Father Abraham, to be like David, who apart from you is an enemy of your kingdom, but in you is a son. So we celebrate you, Father, Son, Spirit, three-in-one. We worship you and we receive your grace and your mercy today. And everybody said, amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. Sometimes we receive the grace of God, but I always feel like we need to respond to the grace of God. And so as we look at the text today, please don't miss this. Jesus is our firm foundation. That's what Abraham tells us. It's ironic to me that Abraham would be like, why are you wearing my jersey? Can I take that from you? Christ and Christ alone is your firm foundation. Abraham testifies of that truth. I pray you do too, and through this song, we get to together. That storms will come, that trials are real, but that God is firm and that he is with us and he is for us. We live in a divided world, but just like the Romans, we are called to unity in Christ as we live on mission in our daily lives let this message be an encouragement to you as you go into the spaces and places that God takes you this week. Until next time.